Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is that gospel reading you heard a moment ago, the the miraculous events upon the sea that night. And we give special attention to these words. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said to him, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. So far, our text, dear friends in our Lord Jesus. Of all of the apostles, don't you so often feel most akin to dear Peter? Because he, he says so often what we'd say. For who wouldn't, want to, who wouldn't have wanted to put up three tabernacles there on that transfiguration mount? One for Moses and Elijah and Jesus to retain that glory. He says what we would say and he does what we do because like him we know the flashing sword of faith. And what it's like then to be scared in the courtyard of life. Scared in the silence. We know impetuous and then timid. We know, like Peter, what it is to be true in the confession of faith and then to be so sorely lacking in the living out of that faith. We know rooster crows and painful regrets. I think we feel quite at home in Peter's sandals. We consider today's text too, and aren't we also familiar with the Petrine perspective there, Peter's perspective? Surely none of us, and I'm I'm sure of this, none of us has been water walking lately. But you don't need to be in Peter's shoes really to know what it's like to be in Peter's shoes. It's really rather familiar footing for us, isn't it? Consider it. Peter's day had been in so many ways the Christian's any day. Peter was compelled by Jesus, who certainly had Peter's best interests in mind, he was compelled into circumstances that he probably never would have chosen for himself. And don't you know the feeling? Compelled by the Lord into the boat, why? Likely to save Peter and the others from getting caught up in the crowd that, that wanted far more the bread than the enduring bread of life from, from the Lord Jesus, the bread of life. So he compelled Peter into the boat, and into the boat Peter climbed, and across the sea he journeyed toward the Jesus-intended shore on the other side. He'd been feebly struggling at the oars, long and hard, getting nowhere, it seemed, fighting forces that were far too much for human might, getting discouraged, no doubt, and tired. Don't you know the feeling? And he and the others had been beaten, it says, beaten by the waves. And the prevailing wind was against him. Don't you, dear Christian, know the feeling? But does not our Lord know, too, our limitations? Does he not know how deep into the night Peter can row? Or how far you can Did he not determine your measurements as he did those the sea? Did did he not prescribe your limits as he did theirs? 
And when Peter and struggling Christians all in that boat needed him, did he not come to them? Ever seeing, ever seeing them, though he be high upon the mountaintop, as our text said, praying. Though he be high upon the mountain, did he not ever see them? And even though they were three and a half miles or so out, Mark tells us. Three and a half or so miles out upon the lake, did he not see them? Did he not know and determine that now, right now, I need to be there with my people? They need to see me near. They need to know I'm near. Has he not come to you? Bending laws of reason and nature's limits to reach those who so need to be reached? Does he not still mysteriously and miraculously, and I'm talking sacramentally, does he not come to those like you and me who need Kyrie Zeleison? He knows, and he comes. But what it must have been, right? You think about it, what it must have been to see what they saw. And And I imagine we all would have loved that Petrine perspective that day. Imagine it. Working the oars, head down, rowing toward exhaustion. And then over the creaking of the oars and the slapping of water against the craft and the whipping of the wind, from the front of the boat, you you hear it. It's a different sort of commotion. One's realization after the next announced with the growing chorus of, what is that? What is that? And then you check the signs and you look, and the, and the look on James' face only confirms the mystified look in Matthew's eyes. And so you too, you swing your head around to see what's so worth seeing. And then you see it too. Him. Him, stepping upon the water, treading upon that which can't be tread upon, the most entirely ordinary motion of walking so most extraordinarily and astoundingly out of place, upon the sea, on the water, walking, as the men's choir so beautifully sang this morning, walking on the foamy deep. Their Lord came to them. He came to encourage them. That's what they needed. In fact, Mark's account tells us, interestingly, that he would have passed them by. Walking there upon the sea, he would have passed them by, perhaps walking by them so that seeing them, or rather seeing him, they could set their eyes upon him, they'd be encouraged by it, derive strength from it to keep on keeping on. He came to them and gave strength and calmed their inner storm with his very familiar word. In life's every day, when the rowing, so to speak, has has been exhausting, and he knows how dearly you need him, he comes to you. It's perhaps not as eye-dazzling as it was that night. But of this I assure you, more intimately even than that, he comes to you. The I am himself comes to you because you need the very same encouragement that those disciples that night needed. 
You need to know, you need to know that Christ is near. Moved by it. Therefore, moved from the mountain heights of heaven, where he there prays for you, his disciples. Just like he was in the text, move from there, he descends. He descends to be where you, his disciples, most need him right now, in the midst of the struggles of life. And so he comes to you. Where does he come to you? In his word. That's where he comes to you. And still upon water. In baptism, he comes to us here and within wine and and bread. That's where he comes to you. But don't ask how. Don't ask how. Human reason won't recognize Christ when he comes there. You know, it's that same sort of reasoning that kept the disciples in our text from recognizing Christ when he did come to them. It's a ghost. They reasoned, it's a ghost. Sad. Sad. It took Christ's word to confirm what their eyes wouldn't believe. It is I. He said literally in the Greek, I am. You see, reason won't let you recognize Jesus. When he comes to us, Jesus' body and blood within the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And sad how often, how often that intended comfort's missed. Because he's not recognized there where he is. But friends, his word has already confirmed to you. Already he has confirmed to you that it's him. It is I within. This is my body. Speaking of the supper, this is my blood. It is I. His words confirm to you that where we're here gathered, there he is with his word and sacraments. We said, wherever two or three of you are gathered together in my name, around my word and my sacraments, there I am. It is I in the midst of you. So don't ask, therefore, how he treads upon his laws of nature to come walking on the sea or to come to you within his word or, or his sacraments. Just take heart. And be encouraged, dear Christian, by the fact that indeed he comes. Christ Jesus comes. How many times? How many times have you and have I been in Peter's boat there? It seems your boat in life is pitched about and the winds are against it. And in the fourth watch of a long night, you've grown tired too. And the familiar voice of Christ Jesus comes and encourages you. Saying, for instance, those familiar words, consider that the sufferings, the struggles, the rowing of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to to you and in you when I bring you to the other shore. When the prevailing winds of public criticism and antagonism against what you as Christians believe are stiff, The wind is stiff and strong and one's tempted just to throw the oars out or to pull them up and quit rowing and just go with the drift because it's far easier. Then that familiar voice comes to you and says, Dear one, no. Be faithful unto death and I will give to you the crown of everlasting life. When one feels defeated and downcast by the word, it's his voice that comes to you and it says to you, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world and you are in me and I am in you. 
when your sins, when your sin haunts you like a specter on the water, and it keeps you from pressing on in faith, but instead it frightens you like those disciples into paralyzed fear, it's Jesus Christ himself who emerges through it all and assures you, you you have an advocate with the Father. And it is I, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I am the propitiation for your sins. Encouraged by this, heartened by it, then we as Christians will often be, will be heartened to, to walk faith's walk, to demonstrate faith's resolve. And so with Peter, then we'll climb out of the boat and we'll step to walk where our Lord then bids us go. And we'll say, Lord, if you have me go there, if you'll have me walk into the storms of life, then that's where I'll go. If it's into the storm of cancer, that's where I'll go. If it's a lonely walk in my college years, because I'd rather be, indeed it's better to be, true to your word and to your will than to walk in the way of premarital sexual relationships, then Lord, if this is the way that you would bid me go, your way, then that's the way I'll go. If it means losing long-time companions, because I'm willing to, I'm, I'm unwilling I'm unwilling to say the ungodly words or to do the ungodly deeds or to go the ungodly way. If it's the Lord's way, Lord, then I'll go. I will go. And if there's only one, one length left, Lord, in life, in my journey here below, and it's the walk into my dying days, then, Lord, I'll go where you bid me go. And I'll come if you say it's my time to come. Lord, I believe. And hardened by his word, his sacraments, which prepare us for all of these things, we go, we walk, walking resolved with our eyes fixed upon our Lord. But you know that often those walks are longer than we first thought. And the cancer treatment is drawn out and still the end, even months into it, years into it, is still indecisive, rather inconclusive, unclear. The girlfriend or boyfriend that's willing to share my convictions is proving, after months or years, is proving elusive. The readiness to walk life's last stretch, once so resolved, now has softened a bit. And like Peter, we begin to notice the waves on this side and on that side. And we see the wind and we hear the howl of uncertainty in our, our sins and our fears. And we take our eyes off of him and our ears off of him and we look down at our own feet of faith. Instead of keeping our eyes fixed upon him who is the author and perfecter of faith, instead of keeping our eyes fixed upon his feet, so steadily upon the sea, but we look at our own feet and we notice, we notice that they might be getting a bit wet. And now they might be getting a bit wetter. 
and looking at the waves instead of Him who owns them and and at our feet instead of Him who enables them to tread upon the seas and listening to the howl of uncertainty instead of His voice beckoning you with His certainties, we grow afraid and we begin to slip under and sink. Dear Peter, I ask you, were you ever in peril? Were you ever in danger? If he bid you there to go, would he not also steady your foot every step of the watery way? I lift up mine eyes unto him. For the psalmist says, he will not let your foot to be moved. I recall a grandfather and a grandson I once saw together at a swimming pool. Little Joel was just getting his feet wet, quite literally, learning how to swim. Grandpa was going to teach him how. Step one was convincing little Joel, the little guy, to, to venture off of the pool steps and upon Grandpa's strong arm to be carried into the deeper parts of the swimming pool so that, one, he could learn to trust Grandpa but also so that he wouldn't be afraid of the watery deep there in the swimming pool. Step one was proving awfully stubborn, though, because little Joel could not, would not, be convinced that it was safe to go where that grandpa's trusted voice was now encouraging him to go. He'd been in the bathtub far too many times to know that his little body weight doesn't hold up on top of the water. Unconvinced yet afraid, he would not budge until, until his grandfather said to him tenderly but firmly, he said, Joel, do you really think that I would let you sink? Do you really think that I would let you sink? Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Sinking under Peter cries out the Christian's daily prayer, Lord, save me. And Matthew writes, immediately. That's a dear word. Immediately, he writes, Jesus reached out his hand and he took hold of him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus reached out his hand and he took Peter's hand in his almighty hand and gripping him with the very hand that soon for Peter and for for you and for all, the very hand, gripping him with the very hand that soon would bear the nail mark of redemption. He drew him up. The nail mark of sins forgiven. The nail mark that testifies to every doubting Thomas It is I. Do you really think that we can be sunk? His nail-pierced hand holding yours. Do you really think that he would let you go? Do you really think that life's sin can drag you down when they, by his nail-pierced hands, have been cast, Micah says, into the depths of the sea? 
Do you really think that lack of friends or companions in this world could trouble you deeply when he is holding your hand all the while? Do you really think that the worst possible cancer or disease, do you really think that even death can tear you from his hand? For he said, no one, my dear sheep, no one will snatch you out of my hand. One concluding thought. I don't suppose Peter ever walked on water again. But he certainly wasn't timid to dive again into it. Remember? Remember seeing his resurrected Lord? His resurrected Lord on the seashore after his Lord had trod to the cross for him and into death for him and then emerged from the grave for him. And then was standing there on the shore for him. You recall what Peter did, don't you? Without hesitation, he did what you would do. He plunged in. And I can imagine Peter thinking to himself, well, whether I'm enabled to to walk to him there or to swim to him, whichever, my Lord will bring me safely there to where he is. Eyes fixed on the resurrected Christ, drawing him, beckoning him with his very resurrected presence. Peter was carried. Peter strove with joy toward the shore where his dear Lord Jesus was there waiting to receive him. God give us that Petrine perspective. Our Lord keep our eyes fixed upon him, keep us firmly walking upon his promises, and his hand firmly holding ours bring us at last to those shores of our heavenly home. In his blessed name, Amen.